0: Sega Corporation, in the mid-90s, was a dominant force in the up-and-coming field of video game entertainment. Capturing 65% of next-generation video game console market share in 1992, the Sega Genesis system was on every 90s kid's Christmas wish list. So as they pinned the Sega brand on the G-rated, family-friendly antics of a little blue hedgehog named Sonic... How is it that the Sega Corporation got tied up in a 1995 Boston murder investigation and the media firestorm that ensued? It's
1: like, how did this guy do that? That was the cop. I mean, we just wanted to know how he did it because it was an incredibly accurate shot for someone who just got a gun.
0: Lee Caraher was the vice president of corporate and consumer communications for Sega in the mid-90s and as police investigators followed an unconventional trail of evidence that loosely tied the shooting to Sega's Virtua Cop arcade game, it would fall to lead to guide the company's response to a public relations threat that was made for the fledgling 24-hour news format. It was among the first, but far from the last time, that video game violence would stoke controversy in America. And we'll also look at the history of how that debate has played out from a PR perspective. I'm Dusty Weiss, and this is Lead Balloon, a podcast about PR, marketing, and branding nightmares, and the well-meaning communications professionals who live them. Thank you for tuning in. You're taking the time to listen to these PR and marketing stories I collect is the greatest compliment that you can pay me. But if you really want to help me out, open up your podcast app right now find the Lead Balloon page, and leave a comment to tell me what you like about the show. I have been dying to land on the Apple Podcast main page, and every comment that you leave gets me a little bit closer. So, our story this month comes courtesy of Lee Carraher, the president and CEO of Double Forte, a PR firm with offices in San Francisco, New York, and Wisconsin. She's led the firm for 20 years, and prior to that served in two different executive roles at Weber Shandwick. But the story we're going to tell today centers on her time as a communications executive in what was, at the time, still a fledgling field certainly just a sprout compared to the $250 billion industry it is today, the world of video games. So, Lee Caraher, thank you for joining us on the Lead Balloon Podcast. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for asking me. So, Lee, you served as the Vice President of Corporate and Consumer Communications for the Sega Corporation from 1995 to 1998. It's a company that, for me, is always going to be inextricably linked to the Sonic the Hedgehog franchise. Sonic? He just turned 31. You just turned 31 and there's a movie series now that's still around today. Live action, CG mashup, Jim Carrey's in it, Idris Elba. Did you ever have any inkling at the time that it would come? You did. You knew it, that video games were as big a business as they are today.
1: You know, when I was at Sega, it was a $1.5 billion company in the United States, right? That didn't count anywhere else in the world. And we're absolutely convinced this was when people were talking about Sillywood, right, Silicon Hollywood, and all the deals were being made between L.A. and, you know, basically the Bay Area. In the industry, we all knew it was coming.
0: Lee started her career at the Weber Group in Boston, which would eventually become the agency Weber Shandwick, and she was working in deep technology accounts there in the 80s. She found she had a knack for translating the language of MIT techies into something a little more coherent to the layman. That is a skill that's plenty rare today, and it was even harder to find in the 80s. And so before too long, she found herself in California, working her agency's account for Sega Corporation and spending more time at their office than her own. From there, well, you know the story. One day the client says, you know, you're here all the time, so why don't we just put you on the payroll? And that is how she became Sega's vice president of corporate and consumer communications.
1: It's very different. It's a very different job. I have to say, you know, when I was external, you know, I was just doing external relations and they hired me to do communications, which is a very different job. The day is very different than when you're external. So my time at Sega was amazing. It was an incredibly challenging time for the company Sega and I actually left the company December 30th, 98.
0: But the story of how Sega would come to be blamed for the murder of a well-known divorce attorney and how Lee would manage the PR response to it also starts in Boston. Late one cold November evening in the city's financial district, a 25-year-old grad student named John Lynn waited in his car with a gun outside a law office. He was waiting for the divorce attorney who had represented his ex-wife in their divorce case a year prior. And investigators say Lynn had a fixation with 48-year-old attorney William Kahn. He was obsessed with him, hated him, even stalked him. And when he saw Khan on the crowded sidewalk, Lynn confronted him, demanding that he get in the car and come along for a ride. With masses coming and going from banks and insurance companies, restaurants and nightclubs, Khan spotted a police officer and ran to get help. And that officer radioed for backup on an attempted kidnapping in progress. It was then that John Lynn emerged from the crowd of people, leveled his 45 caliber handgun and all hell broke loose. The officer dove for cover, and William Kahn ducked through the crowd trying to escape. But John Lynn fired seven shots as people scattered, hitting Kahn in the torso with three of those seven, without even injuring any bystanders. Investigators would later comment that his marksmanship was remarkable for a conventionally untrained shooter.
1: I was like, how did this guy do that? That was the cop who I talked to, we just wanted to know how he
0: did it because it was an incredibly accurate shot for someone who just got a gun." John Lynn took off around a corner, now pursued by two police officers. He turned and shot one of them twice, then stopped in an alley and shot himself in the head. The officer who was shot survived, but attorney William Kahn didn't stand a chance without a bulletproof vest. Initial media coverage of this story centered on the divorce attorney connection and the fact that John Lynn had equipped his handgun with a laser sight that allowed him to aim more precisely. And Lee Carraher says that in that moment, there was no connection drawn between the horrible crime and the Sega Corporation's video game.
1: They didn't figure it out in time for that first story, right? They hadn't even looked at his car. Because, you know, someone dies, that's on the radio, someone in the police department has a briefing on the
0: topic. It wasn't until more than a month later, the Boston Herald ran a story with the headline, Video Game Taught Killer How to Aim, Cops Claim. Dated New Year's Day 1996, the story leads with... John T. Lynn trained for a shooting spree that killed a lawyer and wounded a police officer by blowing away video screen bad guys with a plastic gun in a high-tech Fenway arcade investigators theorized yesterday. quote "By playing these games over and over, he was able to turn virtual reality into actual reality, said Lieutenant Detective Timothy Murray. and Lee Caraher says in the days that followed this story, she reached out to talk to the investigators and find out how they developed this theory.
1: We look at his car and all these
0: tokens on his floor. Investigators found more than 50 video game tokens in Lynn's car and even in his pockets and traced them to an arcade called Jillian's Billiard Club. Employees there said Lynn was a regular. And Lee says the cops told her it was pretty obvious to them where Lynn had been spending his money.
1: And We started putting the tokens into different games, and we started playing all of them. There were probably three or four at that time. There's probably three or four shooter games in every arcade, and then we realized it had to be Virtual Cup because it was so
0: realistic. Realistic, of course, is a term relative to the day, because by modern standards. Virtua Cops 1994 graphics are laughably cartoony, even retro. There's no blood, no gore.
1: That's a first-person shooter. You can play uh, one or two players. And that's an arcade version, but we also had it on the platforms as well.
0: Players in the game assume the role of virtuous city police officers who uncover a terrible conspiracy at an evil corporation, literally dubbed EVIL Incorporated. And they blast their way through a series of scenarios where bad guys pop out of urban surroundings while civilians run for cover.
1: Help me! Don't shoot me! And you were the good guys, and the different scenarios as you moved through the game were situations that were bad guys that you had to take down. As you got better, you got harder situations.
0: It was this Twitch reflex sharpening set of challenges that police investigators and later the media latched onto in blaming Virtua Cop for the murder of William Kahn and the shooting of officer Jonathan Stratton. The Boston Herald story notes, quote, in Virtua Cop, the targets pop up at random at varying distances and sometimes on the run like Kahn and Stratton. Even the backdrop in VirtuaCop's expert level, nighttime at the glass and steel headquarters of the EVIL Corp, is similar to Boston's financial district after dusk. And Lieutenant Detective Timothy Murray is quoted describing the environment in which John Lynn carried out his crime, quote, It's nighttime, an urban setting, there are pedestrians in the street, headlights, streetlights, a running, moving target, all those things work against him, so it's absolutely phenomenal shooting, end quote. Media coverage would note that Lynn only owned his gun for two months before the crime, and spent only about two and a half hours at a firing range with it. But the most important factor that investigators say linked Virtua Cop to the shooting was that, unlike many other games at the time, it put a life-sized replica of a 45 handgun directly into players' hands. Now, 80s and 90s kids will likely be familiar with the technology, originally pioneered by the Duck Hunt game on the Nintendo Entertainment System. The hardware is referred to as a light gun, but it doesn't actually shoot anything at the screen. Instead, when you pull the trigger, it snaps a picture of where on the screen it's pointed, allowing the game to determine whether you scored a hit or a miss. SEGA'S VIRTUA COP WAS ONE OF THE FIRST GAMES TO ADAPT THE TECHNOLOGY TO AN ARCADE GAME FORMAT and THE ARCADE TOKENS IN JOHN Lynn's POSSESSION INFURIATED BOSTON POLICE WHEN THE GUNMAN WOUNDED ONE OF THEIR OWN IN HIS NOVEMBER 30TH SHOOTING SPREE ACCORDING TO DR. MIRIAM MIHAJAN
2: THE POLICE! Who were so, you know, angry that, as they put it, that these people like Lynn were given the opportunity to rehearse pulling on, on their gun, the trigger.
0: Dr. Mia John has written and lectured extensively about violent entertainment and violent behavior. She served on President Bill Clinton's Violence Prevention Task Force, and was on faculty at Rutgers and Barnard and, in the case of this story, was actually quoted in yet another Boston Herald article exploring the cause-and-effect relationship between John Lynn's video game habits and his violent behavior. From the early days of video gaming, she was concerned about its potential effects. But the addition of light guns to the armory, she says, heightened her alarm.
2: At the very beginning, the player didn't get to kill people by pulling the trigger. They pushed a button or, you know, a whatever. But then when it got sophisticated, they were pulling the trigger. And the, and the cops felt, you know, you're teaching people how to kill us or how to how to kill other people. And they, of course, pointed to the military because the military use these same kinds of video games to train their military people. Both in terms of desensitization, because the more you do these kinds of things, the more, like, it's not that big a deal. And, of course, just training. But from Lee Carraher's
0: perspective, she says they were very intentional about how they approached the Virtual Cop franchise at Sega.
1: In the arcade and also in the home games, the guns were red and blue, not black, which is really important. Why was that? Because they were toys, not
0: real. That was something that the company decided that it wanted to drive home.
1: Yes, absolutely. Conscious decision. These are toys, not real.
0: And the gameplay itself, I seem to recall, you know, the bad guys would pop out and you'd have to get them, but then, like, innocent civilians would pop out, too. And you couldn't hit them. Don't shoot the good guys. Only shoot the bad guys.
1: It was like a real-world find-and-take-down concept with civilians. Every once in a while, a mom would walk around, you know, with the baby to a that kind of stuff. You know, there are lots of different kinds of video games, right? That one was trying to be as real world as possible in a shoot 'em up kind of way in a first person shooter.
0: And while critics likened Virtua Cop to law enforcement training simulations, which reinforced twitch reflexes, shooting accuracy, and split second decision making. Lee points to one key difference that she says was overlooked in the media criticism that followed.
1: The game is different from any simulation in that the justice shot
0: gets you the highest points. What is the justice shot? The
1: justice shot is hits you on the wrist.
0: So shooting the gun out of the bad guy's hand, essentially.
1: Yeah would get you the most points that's how we get you up the ladder you know in arcades go see who's winning right mm-hmm. who's got the most points and you could see you know someone's rising up all that kind of stuff killing a person got you the least points
0: prioritized that accuracy over just spray and pray let's just shoot as many shots as possible and get the bad guys
1: correct so accuracy and this right not the heart or the head it was the wrist in that game. So I'm not sure, I don't think they ever figured out how, where this guy was in the rankings, but if he was actually training on this game, he would have not scored as high as people who were wanted to be a high scorer."
0: Still, when the story tying Virtua Cop to John Lynn's shooting rampage broke, Lee recognized that she had a PR situation on her hands that needed to be dealt with.
1: The reporter from the Boston Herald called me and said, the Boston police are saying that this guy trained on your game, Virtua Cup. What do you have to say about that? Let me get back to you. Let me find out what you're talking about and I'll get back to you. So in any of those situations, because it was clearly, it wasn't the only crisis we dealt with at Sega by any stretch of the imagination but the first piece is okay let me get back to you Sean what's your deadline what are you doing da, 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 da. he's in Boston we were in San Francisco or all the bay area so we're 3 hours behind and Sega of America is actually not the arcade division but I helped all of the divisions of Sega so there are a lot of divisions of Sega so i had to one Find out what the heck happened. Like, what a story you're talking about. So this is the process then. The process today would be very different. But the process then was I got my assistant to do the news search on this topic to find out what the heck happened. I then, I'm sure I either went to Ribeiro or, I, depending on the year, Ribeiro or Kalinsky. And I said, this is what's going on. Then with my director of PR, Dan Stevens, who you might know, we sat down to key messages. What's our game? What is the point of the game? You know, let's make sure we know all the, the facts about how you score well. Where did it come from? All that kind of stuff. And then we had to connect with the arcade people as well, because Sega of America, the platform company, the game company, was the major spokesperson for all the Sega properties in the United States. So you find out what happened. And then we called the police. I remember talking to the police eventually because they did not let us know that they had let this information
0: out. Right. And got our ducks in a
1: row and then called them back.
0: And what did you tell them? What was your strategy for messaging about this?
1: I think the strategy is always, you know, what are the facts, right? This was not something that we were aware of. This game is at that arcade. We had to make sure we called that arcade to make sure that the game was at that arcade. And then what questions do you have about the game? Always the strategy in a crisis is not to volunteer anything until you know what they want, right? And then to have the facts ready to answer questions if you can. And there's some questions you can never answer, but I'm sure that's what we did. This story that you sent, I mean, I think there are a lot more stories, right? So this story then created a
0: huge, I mean, this created a huge balloon. I was going to say, what sort of coverage did it get? Did it get... Outside of the sphere of Boston there? Was it a national story at that point?
1: Oh, it was a national story. I mean, first, then the television in Boston picked it up, and then the New York, and then, you know, everybody. So always in that kind of situation is, we're not going on television. I'll provide you a statement in writing if you want it. And that's what ended up happening. You know how on 60 Minutes, they get a piece of paper, and it's like crinkled on top, and statement from the, you know, we did that.
0: Oh, I know. I have been both the person reading that sheet of paper on the news, and I have been the person writing it. So
1: yeah. So we did that. And then I mean, there was always pressure to kill a bad story. I was like, this, we can't kill this one, which is ironic, the, the word you use. Right. But we just have to live through it. And how do you live through it? You go through it by making it as short as possible. And how do you make a story as short as possible is by telling the truth, providing the response and then limiting further discussion. We have no more to say. That's what we have to say.
0: Here are the facts. Kind of stuff.
1: Here are the facts. I think there was one story who got it wrong that we corrected, but the rest of them, you know, it's never what you, exactly what you want, right? <laughs> and then as you see what happens, then you have to decide if it's worth it to try to correct it or not, because a correction makes another story happen. And we see that today in a much faster world, right? In the internet world, it's crazy talk between Twitter instead of days and weeks, right? So you have to be really quick. You had to be quick then, but you have to be really quick now, be ready for all those kinds of things, and have a philosophy about crisis that allows you to not perpetuate the story."
0: For Lee, and much of the video game industry, the shooting came at the tail end of a period where gaming had just recently faced intense public scrutiny. Games like DOOM and Mortal Kombat, which is a martial arts contest involving digitized characters, had raised the ire of church and parents groups, and had been the subject of a series of high-profile congressional hearings, spearheaded by then Senator Joe Lieberman. When a player wins, the so-called death sequence begins. The player may then choose a method of murder, ranging from ripping a heart out to pulling off the head of the opponent with spinal cord attached." As a result of the backlash, the software industry agreed in 1994 to regulate itself with the creation of the Entertainment Software Rating Board, or ESRB. Much like the Motion Picture Association of America rates movies, the ESRB reviews video game titles and issues ratings to help guide parents in determining which games were appropriate for their kids. Also, like the MPAA, the rating system was adopted by the industry voluntarily as a means of heading off potential government regulation. The compromise came at the end of a long and bruising PR and regulatory battle for the video game industry, and Lee Carreher says that by the time of the John Lynn shooting spree, violence in video games as an issue had finally been starting to slide out of her top PR priorities.
1: It was actually wasn't our biggest problem at the time. Our biggest problem at the time was epilepsy by games, because we had been through all the congressional testimony, the creation of the SRP, and then the rating system, and then a lot of controversy on how you rated games. But it was, it was always an important topic, but it wasn't our most pressing at the time because we weren't getting that many inquiries on it.
0: Did this incident, did this sort of spike that up in the conversation that was taking place in the national discourse?
1: It renewed it because Virtua Cop, you're the good guy, not the bad guy. And because the scenarios are such that for Virtua Cop, this is not true for all of those games at the time, but the scenarios were about protecting civilians and how people scored in Virtua Cop was by having the best accuracy against the bad guy and not killing him. But there was other games in the industry that did not hold those parameters. So we were actually able to deflect, you know? I go, well, at least we're not this game. And I forget all the names of them. Maybe you should go talk to so-and-so over here about their approach to it. Not shy about that for
0: sure. How long was this on your radar as a professional communicator? A week, a month, many months? Probably two or three weeks. I mean, we monitored that
1: topic every single day. We would get reports every single day on the topic on media across the country and the world. At that time, the United States was the biggest market for video games. So we monitored the world on that every single day we get reports. You know, our team was divided on the different topics so we could all own a couple of things. So violence in video games was always on the radar, but this topic probably spiked. You know, it went away in a week and a half, which was, I mean, that was fast. And then didn't supplant itself with another story about Sega. So that was even better, right?
0: What would you say are some of the professional lessons that other strategic communicators can take away from your experience in the Virtua Cop saga at Sega?
1: First, you got to know your products. You have to know your products and where do they sit in the world. At Sega, I launched over 2,000 software titles between first and third party. And we only focused on our first party titles, but still it was over 200, 300 titles in five years. Easy. You have to know your product. What is it? Today, Double Forte works with interactive entertainment companies, but also food and wine and, I mean, a lot of different kind of companies, because how was I going to top my, say, experience? I didn't want to just do video games, right? So you got to know what you're talking about. You have to know what your company does, right? And then you have to scenario plan. Like in the food business, you worry about mislabeling something, because if you mislabel a peanut product, someone might die. That is real. So... On a scale of one to 10, you got to rate everything that you might worry about and you got to plan for it. Number two is you need a protocol, which is what's your philosophy on crisis? My philosophy on crisis is don't hide from it. You don't have to feed it, but don't hide from it. And you have to also rate that. So one, death and potential death. Number one, drop every freaking thing. That's the most important thing. No, nothing's more important right, than death or potential death. And that can happen from lots of different things, right? It could be peanuts where they don't belong or salmonella, or it could be uh, someone uses a video game to train, to kill somebody, or it could be a tornado, whatever it is, death or potential death, number one. And then what are your scenarios and who has to be involved so that you can get a good answer, a fast answer? Because in today's world, if nothing's really changed. In my philosophy on that is you need to be ready as soon as someone calls. And if you can get ahead of it, even better. Put out an announcement. We're aware of this issue. We're working on it. We'll be back to you in an hour kind of stuff. And that's the third thing would be to manage the expectation of when you'll be available. Because if you're not available... You're just going to get more calls and more tweets and more everything. But if you manage the expectation of we're aware of the situation, we're working on it now, we'll be back to you at one o'clock. Then people, and particularly reporters, and that's who I'm most, you know, I'm worried about consumers, but I'm also worried about reporters because in general, reporters have more pull. They can syndicate faster than anybody else. Meet that expectation. In that even if at one o'clock you have nothing new to say, go and say, we have no new update. We're working on it. Hopefully we'll have something else in an hour. And then on the protocol internally, is who needs to be involved? In my job at VP of Communications, I would have to get someone else to agree to what I, my strategy was, right? I couldn't just go rogue. So, but who is around? Who is the highest ranking person? When do I need to break vacations? You know, if you're a CCO or VP of Comms, you need to know all those things on the different topics and being prepared and then having a philosophy. So, my philosophy is like I said, you know, don't hide from it. Manage expectations and then limit risk. If you're taking a job and particularly as a spokesperson, you should know what you're getting into. You should know what the company stands for. You should know what you're going to be asked to do because it is you have to stand up. I mean, I always felt that at Sega. My colleagues were like, Lee, you are Sega. I'm like, I'm not Sega. I don't make any games, but I believe in the games. I believe in the company. I believe what we're doing. Are we perfect? Absolutely not. Do we make mistakes? Uh Uh-huh. You know, but I believe in the attention and I believe in the incredible genius of all these developers from Japan and from the United States and from Europe. If you can't believe, don't take that job in the strategic communications because you're going to be attached to whatever the company does, no matter if you believe it or not you are attached to whatever you have to say and you don't always get to say what you want to say but you're attached to it for your whole career because when people look you up they'll go you said what you prop? wait that was a lie i didn't know it was a lie it doesn't matter you should have known and you're right a vp of Corpcom, a cco should know
0: I did want to ask, were there any long-lasting impacts of this story on the company or even as you as a communications executive going forward?
1: I am not a subscriber to any media is good media, any PR is good PR. I really do not believe that, but I know that people started playing that game more in Boston in the arcades.
0: Just from it being in the news so much, Mm -hmm. that is not what I would have expected.
1: But I think even the cops said it was such a good game, right? I mean, he says it, he can't believe how great it is,
0: and, yeah, so... Yeah, the police statements, they're really, when you look at it under that context, they read almost as an advertorial.
1: And Virtual Cop was one of the most, you know, when we launched Saturn, that was one of the most popular games. So,
0: yes, the horrific killing of attorney William Kahn and the shooting of officer Jonathan Stratton by John Lynn created a crisis comms situation for Sega Corporation. But no, it doesn't appear to have had any long-term repercussions for Sega, nor the video game industry more generally. But it seems like we're stuck in this cycle where this gets litigated in the media every couple of years in America, often prompted by a terribly senseless act of violence. And so, coming up after the break, are video games the problem here? It's a societal question, that is far beyond the scope of a little old marketing and PR podcast, and so, of course, I have to pick at it. We will continue our conversation with Dr. Miriam Miyajan and introduce someone else whose industry perspective from a society where video games are as influential as NBA basketball might surprise you. This is generally considered one of the safest countries in
3: the world. There's very, very little violent crime here in any sense of the word. That's coming up in a minute
0: here on Lead Balloon this is lead balloon and i'm dusty weiss we started the show talking about one particular instance where a video game was blamed for enabling john lynn's act of violence in the real world and how the sega corporation navigated that from a pr perspective but how should we go about navigating it as a society because this keeps happening in america Violent acts keep occurring here, and video games get blamed for a John Lynn or a Columbine or a Virginia Tech or a Uvalde. As a 37-year-old man who grew up playing video games, some of them quite violent, how am I supposed to feel about that? And is there a connection between media violence and real-world violence? That's the sort of question that goes way beyond my pay grade. So. I'm bringing in a ringer. Two of them, in fact, from different sides of this argument, but I think you'll be surprised by how much they wind up agreeing on here. And the first one is actually a guy that I have known for about 30 years.
3: So my name is Clinton Bader, but most people would know me by the nickname Paper Thin, which is like a game ID. So I'm a professional esports broadcaster. So that means think of me as a Al Michaels or a John Madden, right, of video game competition. So I do the casting during the games, I do analysis desks in between the matches, all that kind of stuff, and of course, you know, I moonlight doing some other side gigs, but primarily my main focus is on uh, what we call esports casting.
0: But To be clear, you get paid to talk
3: about video games. That's correct. I get paid to yell at video games. It's pretty amazing. (laughs) Now,
0: that's something that you did for free for decades. (laughs) Yeah, in the privacy of my own home. (laughs) It might seem unbelievable to us here in the US. So a few years back, I had to go see for myself. I visited Clinton in Seoul, and even tagged along when he went to cast a PUBG match in an arena packed with 5,000 screaming Koreans. PUBG fans showed up in costume, or in the colors of their favorite team, and watched from the edge of their seats as 64 players on a stage played a video game against one another. It was surreal. But that puts you in a cool spot now because it is becoming as big as professional sports the money the sponsorships everything is pouring into it right now and that gives you as someone who's boots on the ground right now a chance to really help shape this growing space in the sports marketing field and so that's super cool that's super relevant but it also gives you a unique perspective on the story that we're talking about today which is this weird story from 1995 when John Lynn the shooter commits this crime on the street and so the narrative becomes that he trained for committing this crime by playing this game is this a game is this a title that you've played that you're familiar with Oh, yeah. How does it stack up in terms of realism and violence then to some of the other titles that are out there?
3: In terms of realism, not really. Even back then, there's no blood in the game. It's very sort of stylistic in the flashiness of it. It's very sort of like cartoony almost. It's sort of like old school Batman cartoons with the explosions that look like they were made in Microsoft paint, right? With these big bright colors of like oranges and yellows and stuff when you hit a target with your gun.
0: And so you're using this gun, this plastic thing that you hold in your hands and treat like it's an actual firearm in the game, but it's not very violent. It's still not very realistic. I know that you were partial for a long time in your career as a a game player to light shooters. In fact, I think that you were pretty obsessed for a little while with a game called Time Crisis. Yeah. You played the hell out of Time Crisis. Did it make you a better shooter in real life when it came to handling real firearms? I I mean, you've seen me shoot guns. I don't think so. I have.
3: (laughs) 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 I'm not good. Like, like I am not a marksman by any stretch of the imagination.
0: This, in a lot of ways, is not just a media debate it's a philosophical debate and knowing you for a long time i know that you also enjoy philosophical debates and so at the risk of opening up a can of worms here where do you personally draw the line between violence in real life and violence in the media tv movies music and certainly video games as well where is the connection between those two things
3: i've always been typically more of a proponent that most art tends to reflect society more than it does the other way around. So I don't think that they necessarily intermingle other than you see them in our society, they're kind of especially in like a lot of shooters are based around like war or like saving the human race or like doing these kind of things, right? Or, or you're counter-terrorists or something like that. So a lot of it's based in like military. So that has to also reflect on the military culture where people want to be the good guys. They want to save the world. They want to save the day and do those kind of things. And you see like people, of course, have, especially in America, like heavy recruitment drives. They'll use like old war footage as propaganda and things like this. So I don't know if there's a line so much much as it's just, well, it's a part of human culture, so therefore we're going to make media about it.
0: Right. We have a violent society, ergo,
3: our media are also violent. And it's everywhere, right? Like everybody is a military. Every country is a military. So even at the very least, you're looking at something that young men in particular are maybe going to be interested in, you know, young women too.
0: It would be fair to point out at this point that, as a video game professional and a video game enthusiast, Clinton and I probably skew a little bit more in favor of video games in this discussion. So I also wanted to hear more from Dr. Mira Mia John, who you'll recall served on President Bill Clinton's Violence Prevention Task Force and was faculty at Rutgers and Barnard. She also wrote a 1991 book on the topic called Boys Will Be Boys, Breaking the Link Between Masculinity and Violence, And so when we saw her quoted in one of those Boston Herald articles from 1996, we looked her up. And it turns out she doesn't really love the way that her research was interpreted in a lot of the media coverage of the John Lynn shooting or any of the other violent acts about which she was interviewed over the years.
2: When the first edition of my book was published in 1990, there had already been 235 studies on TV violence, basically. A vast majority of the studies done concluded that viewing violence increases the odds of violence. Now, of course, that does not mean that everyone who's going to view the violence or play video games is going to turn violent. That's ridiculous. I mean, I often have men say to me, oh, you know, I played video games. I, you know, watch these movies. Look at me. I'm a pacifist or something like that. And yeah, of course, a vast majority are not affected. Then they don't become murderers. Well, let me put it this way. There's no way that watching videos, TV or violent films alone is gonna turn anyone into anything serious. It's always an interaction and it makes absolutely no sense. I mean, the media people try to sound as if those of us who make the points that I make are saying that, oh, watching violent videos or playing violent video games, all of that leads people to act violently. No, we're not saying that. We're saying that it it interacts with other at-risk factors to encourage violent behavior. That's very, very different.
0: I think it's interesting that you bring up the media coverage aspect of this because particularly when we're looking at news stories from this era before social media was even a factor, every piece of mass media information that we consumed at the time was coming through that filter of the mass media, of the 24-hour news networks, which were just starting to really cement their footholds at that time. And speaking as a former member of the media myself, I know that there is a predilection to try to dumb down very nuanced arguments and make them essentially sound worthy, something that can snag somebody's attention and communicate a point to them in just a matter of seconds, whether or not that point is a full distillation of the argument that's being made or not. So from your perspective, how well did the media handle its coverage of this story and stories like it in the mid to late 90s?
2: They didn't cover them well. You pointed to, you know, making things simple and easy to, you know, focus on and all that. That's the media, and they really haven't focused on the complex things that are being said about this. Had one experience which I think was really pretty extraordinary I was giving a lecture and as, as soon as I'm done with this a woman jumps up and says how can you say that violence on the screen causes any of this there's poverty there's racism there's injustice da da, da da she goes on and on so I said well you know I do think that I at least three times I believe said that it was one of many factors that interacted with other variables well, After the lecture was completely over, this man comes up to me and he says, well, I have to tell you, you did not say that three times. And I said, I didn't? He says, no, you said it nine times. And he said, I I said, I started counting after the third time. I said, why is this woman repeating herself all the time? And then he said, now I understand.
0: So even Dr. Mia John feels like it's disingenuous to lay the blame for society's violence solely at the feet of video games and media. Things like poverty, institutional racism, child-rearing support, and of course, easy access to firearms, these are all factors she says contribute to violent crime. How much so? Well, for that it would help to compare American society to some of its pure nations, where some of those other factors aren't as ubiquitous. Thankfully, our pal Clinton Bader happens to live in such a place. You now live in Seoul, South Korea, and for people who aren't familiar with it, Seoul is considered the mecca of eSports in a lot of ways. This is the center of the video game universe for a good portion of the world, and you're in the thick of it. What can you tell me about the role of video games in South Korean society? It's pretty huge.
3: It's definitely sort of almost Everyone I know that's my age or younger in Korea plays video games and not just people that I work with. Obviously, of course, they're excluded from what I'm talking about here because they're directly involved with esports. But a lot of the friends I made outside of esports, most of them play video games to some level and oftentimes quite frequently. So this is a country that has a rich history with video games, has a loving history with video games, and it very much embraces it as part of its culture.
0: I guess liken it to something in American society. If you were looking at things that Americans watch and consume for entertainment, is this World Series of Poker? Is this NBA? Is this National Football League? What are we looking at here?
3: Probably not quite NFL levels. For example, soccer is a little bit more popular than esports for the most part here in Korea. I wouldn't say it's NFL levels then, but maybe yeah, NBA, baseball levels of popularity where it's like kind of second tier to
0: the most popular sport. But millions of people are watching it and getting excited about it and talking about it around the water cooler.
3: Oh, totally. Millions of people watch esports every year in Korea.
0: Safe to say that video games definitely play a larger role in Korean society than they do here in America, even in 2022. So if violent video games cause violent behavior, we can then draw the conclusion that Korean society must be even more violent than American society, right? Yeah, well that's starkly not true.
3: (laughs) I mean, it's just not a very violent society at all. This is generally considered one of the safest countries in the world. It's a country where you can go out at three, 4 a.m. and wander the streets of Seoul, go to a park, and there's no fear at all that anything's going to happen to you. There's very, very little violent crime here in any sense of the word. I don't think I've ever felt in danger here since I moved here.
0: I came out and I visited you almost three years ago now. We spent a week, we rammed around. I got to follow you to an event that you called, but we went out to a bar a couple nights later and you got up to use the bathroom and left your $600 smartphone sitting on the bar unattended while you went to use the bathroom and you came back and sat down. I'm like, dude, you just left your cell phone sitting there. Anybody could have grabbed it and walked away. And you're like, no, they wouldn't have done that. Yeah, it doesn't happen here. It's extremely rare. Even theft, even petty theft is extremely rare. We're talking about a society here with more video game use. We're talking about a society that I would argue has more alcohol use. Yeah. And yet none of the violence. Can you quantify exactly how much less violent crime there is in Korea than the United States?
3: Absolutely. I can give you at least intentional homicide. I think that's probably one of the easiest statistics to quantify in terms of violent crime. So in Korea in 2020, there were 308 murders total for intentional homicides. Just to give you a baseline, Korea is a population of about 50 million people. So in terms of deaths per 100,000 people, you're talking at 0.6. 0.6 deaths per 100,000 people by intentional homicide in Korea in 2020. In the United States, you had 20,982 intentional homicides. So same year. And that is per 100,000 people, 6.3 died via intentional homicide. And so that's about 10 and a half times more in terms of the percentage per capita.
0: Now, you wind up traveling the world quite a bit to do esports play-by-play and commentary. You've been to Russia, to China, to Germany, to England, to all of these other places where video games also play a much larger role in society. What is the violent crime like in those places?
3: It's less everywhere than the United States. Let's start that in every other country that I've been to. I think the way I want to frame this is I want to look at the countries where people think of first person shooter games, particularly in esports, as being really popular. So this is like the regions that take these games very, very seriously. They play them maybe more hours than anywhere else. So let's start with Germany, since you mentioned that one. Germany in 2020, 782 deaths. So that's a 0.8 per 100,000 people intentional homicide rate. So just a little bit more than South Korea, still significantly less. Let's look at maybe the UK. The UK is 809 deaths. This was 2018, though, but the numbers don't change too much in most of these countries year to year. So that's 1.2 per 100,000 people. So a little bit more than Germany, still pretty high. Let's look at Sweden, a country that is well known for their their shooting game prowess. Let's put it that way. Similar stats to the UK, 124 total intentional homicides. So 1.2, they get the same rate as the UK, basically. So European countries, you're seeing significantly less. Compared to the United States. So, okay, let's look at Southeast Asia, for example, a region that is, you know, let's just be honest, uh, you know, in terms of GDP, less than the United States, less than all these countries I just talked about. So Thailand a big-time player in FPS esports, FPS games. You're talking 1,787 deaths, so about 2.6 per 100,000 people, so more than Sweden and the United Kingdom, but still about a third of what you had in the United States. The Philippines, a country that does struggle with violence, that is, I think, a well-known thing, and, you know, especially with President Duterte and stuff, there's been some kind of issues, 44 per 100,000 people. So still less than the United States. So every country that you can look at in terms of, if you want to look at probably the most relevant statistic to this conversation, which is killing people. And I'm not even talking about guns here. When you start getting into that conversation, it's wildly less. It's crazy. There's only a few gun deaths, intentional homicides in Korea every year, for example. Another country that we should look at, like let's look at Japan, where virtual cop was made. Virtual Cop 2, let's focus on that one in particular, because that was the one that came out in 1995. It sold 7,000 arcade cabinets or units, right? 4,000 of those were in Japan, 3,000 globally. So most of those units were sold in Japan. And in Japan in that year, there was 47 intentional homicides by gun. Total was like 300 some. So still way less. And of course, now in modern days, it's about 300 intentional homicides every year in Japan, and they average like one gun death per year. So even looking at the country where this game was made, where it was the most popular, it's still significantly less than America.
0: So are we led to conclude then that violent crime is just a uniquely American phenomenon?
3: I'd say in predominantly democratic countries, let's say modern first world countries. Yeah. I mean, there are countries that do have similar levels of violence like Brazil and Mexico, but that's often a product of different things going on, right? Than it is anything else. So I think, yeah, absolutely. You can't look at the countries where violent video games are the most popular, particularly Europe and East Asia, and they all have lower rates of intentional homicide. Let's just take big picture. Let's take global. I think we can all say that over the last 20 years, violent video games have skyrocketed in popularity. That's just a fact. Like the copies sold have skyrocketed because of the spread of internet and cheaper computers and all these things. So the rate of overall homicide, intentional homicide globally for everything, for everywhere with how much video games are just a pervasive part of most societies now The global homicide rate has slightly declined in the last 20 years. So it's impossible to find any correlation here with the data, with the raw data. You you just can't say that there's an increase of violence with the increase of video games. The opposite has happened.
0: What makes America so special that we have a murder rate that's five to 10 times that of comparable nations in Europe and East Asia? Well, Dr. Mia John says, for starters, there's our substandard support net for working families.
2: A country like France has a daycare system where, from the age of four months, parents who need to work at that that so early, they can bring their children to the daycare. The women who work there have three years of training in child psychology, child physiology, et cetera, et cetera. It's the highest imaginable quality. These teachers are respected, they're well-paid. In this country, a lot of kids are either in terrible daycare. I went through that when I was looking for daycare for my children. I was horrified by some of the stuff. And also a lot of people can't even afford daycare. So their kids come home from school and they're home for three, four hours until their parents come home. It's like, you know, They're without any care, so all of this, we already have a bad situation in this country and then it's fed by the violent entertainment. So it's all these factors interact and these other countries have much, much better conditions for children.
0: And then there's the factor that is so glaringly obvious, I left it till the bitter end. And I know this as a gun owner, it is easier to purchase a gun in America than it is in almost any other nation on the planet. Here's Lee Karaher, the former comms VP at Sega, again. I
1: don't mean this to be political, but if you think about how most death by guns happens by 18 to 21 year old men who uh, have access to guns. If you don't have access to guns, you can't do it, right? But 18 to 20 year old men, which you would imagine is straight dab smack in the middle of video game. You know, that's when they're playing video games. Well, we know today that the 36, 37-year-old is the average age of a video game player. So you can't equate the two. If you looked at the straight numbers, the numbers don't track if you don't have the laws for gun control. When the gun control laws change, access changes, that's when the numbers change. When you don't have access,
0: you don't get it. So let's recap then. Given 30 years of context, the Boston police theory that playing VirtuaCop turned John Lynn into a trained killing machine ages poorly. Sure, playing a game like Virtua Cop might improve your hand-eye coordination, your twitch reflexes, and your ability to make quick, calculated decisions, but so does playing ping pong. And when a meathead punches out another meathead at the bar, nobody blames the CrossFit gym where he lifts weights, right? As to the broader question about whether violent video games or movies or TV make a person more likely to commit acts of violence, folks like Dr. Mia John will tell you that there are some data to back that up. But it's almost always in combination with other factors that are much more likely to correlate with violent behavior lack of access to mental health services, lack of support for working families, poverty, institutional racism, and Ease of access to guns. That's a uniquely American cocktail of societal problems that is to blame for our uniquely violent society. And so, if there's a public relations takeaway from this story, maybe it's this. That when a public official, a politician, or a member of the media blame video games for an act of violence, it's probably just because they'd rather not address any of those other issues. Thanks once again to Lee Caraher, Dr. Miriam Miajohn, and Clinton Paper Thin Bader for sharing their insights for this episode. Stick around after the credits for a little more with Clinton, by the way, because we have an ongoing project with him here at PodCamp Media that we are dying to tell you about. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe. Tell your friends and follow PodCamp Media on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, or TikTok. Uh, Hilariously, we had a TikTok video go viral recently that had nothing to do with podcasts. And now I'm in licensing talks about using the clip for a cable TV show. So, I don't know. The internet is weird, guys. Lead Balloon is produced by PodCamp Media, where we provide branded podcast production services for businesses. Our podcast studios are located in the heart of beautiful downtown Milwaukee, Wisconsin, but we work with brands all over North America. Check out our website, podcampmedia.com. Larry Kilgore III helped out with dialogue editing for this episode. Beatrice Lawrence, our production assistant and intern. Until the next time, folks, thanks for listening. I'm Dusty Weiss. And now, the rest of our interview with Clinton Paperthin Bader. Lastly, we'd be remiss if we didn't bring up the fact that you're involved with another little project that we've got going on here at PodCamp Media, a show that we produce called Pixelsmiths. That's something we're really excited about. We're coming up on 10 episodes here pretty soon. And you get to work on that with Larry, who also works on Lead balloon, but he gets to get behind the microphone on that one. So tell us a little bit about Pixelsmiths. What do you love about it? And uh, what are we doing over there?
3: Yeah. So Pixelsmiths is a podcast focused on indie game developers from the
0: people who do the coding
3: to maybe higher level people involved in the companies, uh, what have you. And we interview them and really try to get to the heart of what it takes to make an indie video game these days uh, as indie video gaming has really exploded in popularity over the last couple of years. And with working from home and things like that because of COVID in particular, a lot of people are realizing they can make their own games and make them well. And we want to give these people a platform to tell their stories, to really showcase the talent the passion, the drive, uh, all the things that are involved and help people understand what it takes to make video games, whether they're just interested in indie video games themselves, whether they want to make them, they can learn from the people who've already done it, who've been successful. It's a really interesting and fun podcast. Uh, for me, it's kind of nice because I'm in, heavily involved in esports, which is a widely different thing in some ways than indie video games. So it's something that I'm really interested in. Personally, I play a ton of indie video games that I get to kind of explore another avenue of my passion.
0: It's a great show. You crush it as host. Larry crushes it as host. And I've got to say, Larry has gone above and beyond in hunting down some of these really cool indie titles and bringing them to the forefront. So I'm not sure how much of a Venn diagram overlap there is between our marketing and public relations audience and our video game audience. But if there is an overlap, this is the episode for them. And they should also check out Pixel Smiths, which is available on all of the major podcast platforms.